you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And if you're a first-time guest with us here today, certainly thankful to have you. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's one in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John is one of the last letters in the New Testament, so if you turn all the way to the back of your Bible and a few pages to the left, you will find 1 John. Last week, we dealt with the fact that John wants us to be certain as he closes out, begins to close out uh, his letter. It'll only take him several more weeks, don't worry. Um, As he begins to close out this letter, he wants us to be certain about the salvation that we have been given in Christ. Not only did we talk about is it possible to know that we have salvation, that we have eternal life, but it is a privilege for all of God's people. It's not just for a select few. And in fact, it's more than that. It's a responsibility for all of the chosen of God to wrestle with and to come to sure assurance, to assurance, full assurance, that they are in fact in Christ. This is uh, Jesus' desire as he prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And I have received them and have come to know in truth that I, co- I came from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. John, emphatically here, is reminding us that he writes for the same end. That he wants us to know with all confidence that we have eternal life. And if you'll remember what we've been dealing with throughout the letter, if you're here for the first time, we've been dealing with the reality that John puts our knowing of our eternal life into four tests. And that is, do we love God? Do we love the truth? That is theology. Do we love and guard the commandments of God? Are they laborious to us? And when God levels an imperative towards His people, they aren't burdensome. Because we know ultimately everything has been done in Christ and what He commands is right. And then do we love the church of the living God? And, and, and we've discussed the reality that if we want to ask a, any one of those four questions honestly, we don't do it by asking directly, do I love God? There are far too many people who ask that question and they will answer the question according to their feelings. Well, I feel like I love God. Well, friends, it doesn't matter how you feel if in fact you don't deal with the other adjunct questions. the, The way to answer the question, do I love God, is not by feeling, but by asking yourself, do I love the truth? Do I guard the commandments of God and do I love His church? The question of loving God doesn't come down to just a sentimental feeling. It comes down to, has God redeemed your heart and inclined your heart in a, in a, in a way that you live a life that brings glory to Him? And, and the other way is true as well. Someone may say, I love theology. I just happen to hate the church. And you can mark it down. That's an individual that doesn't love theology at all. 
Because an individual who loves theology is an individual who loves the bride of Christ, who loves God, and who guards the commandments of God. So John writes here again in verse 13, emphatically that we would know. And what he's doing is he doesn't want us to miss the forest for the trees. He knows that we are prone to hear these questions about loving God, loving the truth, keeping and guarding the commandments of God, and loving the church of God. And he knows that we will be prone to, to getting down into the weeds on those questions instead of realizing that all of those questions point to a greater reality, and that is that we can have assurance that we have been born of God. Well, this morning, I want to return to verse 13 one more time to take a look at what it is now, now that we've dealt last week that, that, that the aim is that we would be sure, that we would know. I want to aim at what we are sure of, and that is eternal life. So if you would do honor the reading of God's Word and stand as we read together, starting in verse 13. John writes here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is God's Word to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence. We are so thankful for Your Word. We are so thankful for the assurance that You give through the working of Your Spirit. And Father, we acknowledge the reality that we all are sinful and are without hope in the world apart from Your graces. And so today, might we understand what it means afresh and anew, that you give eternal life. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So again, I want us to come back here to to verse 13 and deal with these two words, eternal life. What does that mean? Well, I would argue that in those two words, we can find the meaning of the entire Word of God. In the entire New Testament, for sure. What kind of eternal life is dealt with here? Is it the quality? Is it the quantity? Maybe we ask the question, when the four Gospels are written, what are they written speaking of? Uh, why is it that we don't find in the four Gospels church growth paradigms? And why is it in the four Gospels that we don't find Um, methodologies? And why is it in the four Gospels that we don't find first and primarily individuals going about seeking to have uh, people in their community fill out a card and pray a prayer and then they just assure them of salvation? Why is it that none of that kind of ministry is found in the New Testament Gospels? Why is it that the profession of faith is not necessarily the, the, the pivotal point of those four first Gospels. Well, I think John gives us the answer to these kinds of questions when he is concluding in the second to the last chapter of his Gospel. In John chapter 20, we read these words. And think about this. This is the purpose for which all of the Gospels are written. Now, Jesus did many other signs, John writes, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Remember, 
It is not John that is writing here ultimately. It is the Spirit of Almighty God saying the reason that I, that, that I have inspired the apostles to write these Gospels is that by believing in Christ and in Christ alone, you may have eternal life. Friends, I'm convinced that one of the problems we face as modern believers is that we are set about answering so many questions that really are not the aim of God's Word. We spend so much time trying to straighten out things in the here and now that we neglect the glorious nature of the promises that we have been given in the Word of God. It was Thomas Manton who said, a man's greatest care should be the place where he will live the longest. Therefore, eternity should be the scope of our thinking. Isn't that helpful? That far too often we are asking questions, and it's okay to ask questions. I, I think the Lord honors that, and it's fantastic to see how the body works out uh, questions about life in the here and now. But the reality is that the New Testament and the Gospels and the pastoral letters are really aiming at something that is otherworldly. Now, it has impact in this life, but it is something of a better quality. It is eternal life. And what we find to be true in what John is writing here, again, in his Gospel, some might say, well, well, John is writing that we may believe and have life in his name, but maybe the other uh, authors of the Gospels are writing for a different purpose. But that's not true. They wrote them to, to give a picture of who Jesus was and to give us proof and demonstration that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Redeemer, the one upon whom our hope relies. He is the one who came to give life and to give it abundantly. That's what he says, and Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10 I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. It is Christ who is the Son of God, and it is to Christ alone that eternal life belongs. Not only do the Gospels testify of the reality of who Christ is and that in His name alone comes eternal life, but this is the entire emphasis of the book of Acts. It's interesting, in our day and age, we have so divided the church in arguing about the different particulars of the book of Acts and what they mean that we have lost the entire forest for the trees. Because the forest, the picture of Acts, is a declaration that there is evidence that Jesus is who He says that He is, that He is the only begotten Son of God, that He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and that He has sent His Spirit among the church to give new life. It's a testimony written about who Jesus is. And this is what the first preachers went about dealing with. They went about proclaiming that the promised Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting on was in fact Jesus and that everyone who called upon His name would be saved. But not only do the Gospels and not only do Acts testify to this reality, but also the pastoral letters. Many people misinterpret the pastoral writings by reading them in such a way that they interpret the meaning of the pastoral letters to be for the entire world at large. 
and they're not. You know, I was sitting, uh, uh, sitting at the front of my house uh, earlier this week, and I saw the mailman coming. And my dog hates the mailman with a purple passion. And, and I've tried to encourage my dog to love the mailman. He just won't. Now, and part of what I thought about is I just love the faithfulness of the mailman. Don't you love the faithfulness of the mailman? He brings the letters as they are written and he delivers them for what they say. He, he doesn't spend his time trying to edit them. I wish that in my profession I could find people as faithful as postmen that would just carry the mail and deliver it faithfully. And far too often, well, if, we, if we deal with the pastoral letters in the way that they're written only to the church, it's going to be exclusive. Friends, the, the, letters of the, the, the pastoral letters of the New Testament are exclusive because they're written to the church because they ultimately tell us that Jesus came to give His children, the church, eternal life. He didn't come to give the whole world eternal life. He came to give those that the Father had given Him eternal life. And John wants us to know nothing less. John wants us to know that in Christ we have everything that we need. When Wall Street is teetering on the edge of a recession, when our leaders can't figure out the difference between a boy and a girl, uh, when we face a generation of people so hostile and antithetical to the gospel, we as Christians need to be reminded everything that we have ever needed in this life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Him. And so the great question that John asks us is not do you have a feeling about Jesus? The question is, are you in Christ? Because it is in Him that we have everything that we need. In Him is life. And He is the one who ultimately can set us free. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. Christ is the one who came to, live li to give life. And only He can bestow that life. And yet we live in a world that distorts this simple reality that Jesus came into a sinful world to bestow life on all of those who would believe. It's the most basic thing in the world, and yet there are so many who want to distort it. There are people who instead of seeing the Gospel for what it is, and the Gospel is this, it is good news, it is a proclamation, it is God announcing that He has accomplished something. It's not an invitation. Now, there is, a, there is a sense in which you and I invite people to come in repentant faith to Christ. And we should be doing that. But the Gospel that God declares through His, His apostles is an accomplishment. It's something to be proclaimed. It's something to be heralded and announced. It is the reality, this is the Gospel, that man, apart from God, are sinful and depraved. That we have no hope in this world because we are spiritually dead. We run from the things of God and we hate God apart from the graces of God. But God in His kindness in the fullness of time sent Jesus to live perfectly in our place and then He bore the punishment for our sin. He was the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for all who would call upon His name. He died, He was buried, and He rose again. And those who believe upon His name 
will be saved. It is a proclamation. The Gospel is not something that is waiting for our effort. Everything that needs to be accomplished has been done in Christ. He's done it all. We sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. It's amazing to me how many churches will sing that hymn this morning and then the pastor will get up and pare down the meaning of that hymn. Jesus really has accomplished all of it. He's done everything. A perfected, a perfect life, a sinless sacrifice, punishment delivered, all of that we find in Christ. But some want to say, well, the Gospel is actually a great exhortation. The Gospel is actually something that tells us to be better people. The Gospel is something that tells us to live a moral life. We've went through generations of pastors seeking to make our nation more moral. My question for you this morning is, have they accomplished their end goal? Some want to say that the Gospel is a great invitation. Fill out this card, pray this prayer, and then we'll give you a guarantee, a certificate to heaven. Some want to, the Gospel to be a foundation for their social political works. We can make this place better. We can fix this world. We can. We can. We can. The Gospel is none of this. The Gospel is an announcement that Jesus has come, that He has come to give life, and that He comes not to give it begrudgingly, but abundantly. And He has done that. And then there will be someone who when that announcement is declared that the Gospel is the reality that Jesus has come to give life and that abundantly and that freely by His own divine grace of His own accord apart from our works, some religious knothead will stand up and say, yeah, but. Can I tell you that when God sends His only Son into the world to give life and to give it abundantly, that when any person stands up and says, yeah, but, our one response to that individual should be, sit down, that's blasphemy. We can add nothing to the accomplishment which Christ has done. Now, He has accomplished it, and yet in our lives, in our generation, He is still working it out. He's still saving those whom the Father has given Him. He is still sanctifying those who have believed. He's still equipping those whom He saves in their ministries. He's still moving us along. He's still sending many into the world to preach the Gospel. But friends, at the basis of all of that... In the ministry of the church, it is He who is doing it. Now, there are those who persist in the face of all of this in doubting a thousand ways that Christ has really come to give eternal life. And the question is, why? Well, because some trade what is organic for what is mechanical. Instead of seeing that it is the Spirit of God that gives life in the church and the Spirit of God alone, they want to replace that with something mechanical, something they can control, a a witnessing program, an outreach ministry, and, and they want to be the ones to do it. But friends, that's not what eternal life is. So others only value the extraordinary and forget what is ordinary. It's part of the fallen world that we don't value what is 
ordinary. We take for granted the sunset, but we rush out to see the eclipse. We ignore the ordinary child born into poverty, but we wait to read from the tabloids about the child born into nobility. We ignore our neighbor, but we read all about celebrities that we will never know. We think little of the common person who lives life, the life of faith, but we love the testimony of the, ma of the man who is born into some crazy sect of religion. But friends, this is the point. Ultimately, it is Christ who has saved us, and He's done it by an extraordinary death, burial, and resurrection. Ultimately, what we find is this. We find an entire generation of churches, and this is what we long for. Give us something, Jay, that is extraordinary. Give us something that we can marvel after. Give us something that, that really causes us to go, wow. And, and what we find in all of that is we want to find the wow inside of us. We want to find the extraordinary in our lives. You know how many people I've talked to who say, you know, I just don't have an extraordinary testimony. I, I don't know uh, that my testimony would wow anyone. The only reason we say things like that is because we are looking for the extraordinary in ourselves and not in Christ. Because ultimately, every person that is born again by the Spirit of God, no matter how ordinary they are, and no matter how faithful they are, and no matter how marginalized and ignored they are by society, the fact that Jesus has done that in them is extraordinary. What we need to reckon with as a church is this reality. Everything that is extraordinary is only found in Christ. It's not found in us. It's not about us. The New Testament never lays stress, ultimately, in a way that we look at how we come to Jesus. The New Testament stresses, rather, the fact that we have come to Christ. That we have been born again. We focus in our day and age far too long on the how. And we build entire systems of ministry around the how of the gospel. We build entire paradigms of ministry off of, of huge numbers. I've been to pastor's conferences where they say, I, I was just in such and such a venue and I, we saw 4,000 people saved. And that happens over and over and over. And the pastors, what they're saying is, look at how extraordinary my ministry is. But the reality is, those people go on and their professions prove to be vain. What is extraordinary is when, when the Spirit of Almighty God comes into a life, however ordinary it is, and causes that heart, that individual, to love God, to love the church, to guard the commandments of God, and to love the truth. That's extraordinary. And that's what John is saying. But again, far too often we focus on, on the how of coming to faith, not resting in the, the fact that it's been done. There's this illustration that has been shared several times, and I'll borrow it, of two men who enter a, a cabin, they enter a room after a long journey, and both of them are soaking wet. And they look at each other and they're like, well, one of them asks the other, well, how did you... How did you how did you get soaked? How did you become drenched in water? 
And the one man says, well, I was walking and I forgot to bring a raincoat and I got about halfway here and all of a sudden this downpour came and I was drenched. I didn't have any way to protect myself from the elements. And, and so as that storm landed on me halfway through my journey, that is when I became soaked. And he said, well, but what about you? How, how did you become drenched in rain? And he said, well, I left my house and I didn't have an umbrella at the house. And so from the time I left home all the way here, there was just a misting drizzle. And I was saturated all the way through my journey. All of this to say, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that one of those men can say, I know the exact point when the rain came. And the other one would say, I don't know, it was raining the whole time I was walking. What matters is that they both end up on the other side fully saturated. And friends, so it is with our salvation. Do you know how many times pastors will say, do you know that you know that you know that you know? Well, no. I mean, that's a lot of knowing and knowing and knowing. And what it ends up being tied back to is this. Do you know the moment of your conversion? And there is far too much theology in the church today that says if I can pinpoint a moment, then I can live like hell on the other side of that moment and it doesn't matter. That's not the argument that John has been giving us. That's not what he tells us. What he tells us is that it matters little the how, but rather that we are in fact in Christ and that will be manifested in those four ways that we love God, that we love the church, that we love the truth and that we guard the commandments of God. And if you see a life saturated in those things, then you can be sure that it is God who has ultimately done the work. See, the vital question that we have to ask as we face the test is do we see this life in ourselves? Do we see it growing? Do we see it coming to maturity? Do we see love of God, love for the truth, love for the church, and love for keeping, guarding the commandments of God? Now here is the reality of all of this. It's that so many in the church today have been robbed of assurance because they say, I don't have this moment that is spectacular and extraordinary and all of those things. I just remember, there are some that say, I just remember growing up and understanding from the time I was small the gospel and loving Christ and His church and being loved by His church and, and all of these other things I see in my life, but, but, but I don't have that moment. Well, friends, we need to see that the gospel and that the apostles give us reason to rest it ultimately, in the work of God that He has done it. You see, so we trade all of these things when we should rest in what God has done. Friends, ultimately, we live our lives looking for eternal life that is grounded in us, in something extraordinary in us, but ultimately, that eternal life is found only in Christ Friends, if you come to Christ and you have joy knowing that He came to give life and that more abundantly, you must rest in this reality that when Jesus comes to give life, when you can see these things, these four questions, these four tests of life operating for you, you have to realize that your God has sent His only Son into the world to bestow that life upon you. 
And friends, He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it by giving you not only the duration, but also the quality of life. Often, when we have conversations at the end of life with people, we will ask them, you know, there's two categories, and and, and we're going to have to figure out, do you want more days or do you want more quality of living? But isn't it a joy to know in the Gospel that question is never asked? That we have both the duration, the the uh, eternal nature of of life, and we also have the quality that as we look at Jesus, eternal life means that we live as He lived. That we will grow by the power of the Spirit to be molded into the image of Christ. You see, friends, this is the reality. We preach far too often a Gospel that is centered on merely being uh, given forgiveness and eking our way into heaven. Uh, We preach a Gospel that says, I just want to escape the punishment. I just don't want to be held accountable for all that I have done. But friends, the joy of the Gospel is that not only are we set free from the penalty of sin, but we are given the joy of knowing that we have the quality of life that is in Christ. And we see that increasing throughout our lives. We don't experience it in in its fullness now, but we have a foretaste of that life in the here and now. We have a foretaste of knowing that we belong to God. That this eternal life that He came to give, He didn't give in a way that, that, that if we mess up once or twice, He's going to remove the gift. He came to give life and that abundantly. So friends, if you see at all a love for God, a love for the truth, a love for the people of God, and a guarding of the commandments of God in your life, rejoice. Give praise to Him because it's only He who could do that. And someone will say, yeah, but Jay, ultimately I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've missed the mark. So how can I ever rest knowing that I have eternal life? Because you wouldn't be worried about the reality of your sin had, not, had God not given you eternal life. In fact, that's what John deals with in the very first chapter. If you look in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is what we need to know about eternal life. Not only is it, it, is it full in its quality, in its quantity, not only will it endure forever, but it is ultimately not we who are doing the work of, of having that, moving ourselves in the direction of eternal life. It is Christ in us. Remember what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is the one at work giving us eternal life. And friends, as we say goodbye to family members and to loved ones, we can know that the eternal life that the Bible talks about is not a begrudging eternal life conditioned on our performance, It is an eternal life that is given to all that are found in Christ. Friends, there are far too many of us that struggle with assurance. And we struggle for this simple reason. That we don't look to Jesus. We look at ourselves. We're constantly consumed with the insufficiency in us. 
And friends, knowing that you are insufficient, it should ultimately not lead you to despair. It should lead you to a point where you look to Christ, where you exalt Him, where you acknowledge the reality that it is only because He has come. And He's come to give life. And He's come to give that life abundantly that you ever have a hope for heaven. Friends, it's interesting that there are two songs. One we sang this morning that really speak to this reality. That our assurance can only be found in the works of Christ and not in ourselves. Not in our goodness. Not in our families. Not in our morality. But only in Christ. Think about the song, The Rock of Ages. As Augustus Toplady says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Or that wonderful song that was written in 15, I believe 29, by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress. He writes, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He, the Lord of hosts, His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Beloved, the reality is we have a gospel that does not need to be debated and argued. We have a gospel that needs to be declared. And it is this gospel that Jesus has come in the flesh to give life and to give it abundantly. Would you go on this week believing that truth and pray with me now. Father God, we come to you today thankful for your grace. We come thankful for the joy of being with your people today. And ask, Father, that you would give us strength throughout this week to remember our salvation is not in you, but is in the finished work of Christ alone. Father, if there's one here that doesn't know you, or that doesn't have assurance, might you lift their head that they would behold the glories of Christ and rest not in their own works, but only in Jesus. Father, might we forever see the Gospel not as a, an, a divine attempt, but as an eternal accomplishment. And what, might we rest in the fact that we have eternal life in spite of us and because of Christ. In Jesus